So thank you for being here in this dreadfully cold afternoon. This one will be about Tolkien's interest in languages and his invented languages. There is a handout with a reading list up there, so I hope you've all got one. So Tolkien was interested in languages since childhood, and much of his scholarly work was concerned with linguistic and philological matters. Philological research constitutes the bulk of his published work, including his edition of Sir Gawain and the Green Knights with its glossary and extensive commentary on the text. Another influential linguistic study is his article on the language of Ankrinewisse. Ankrinewisse is Middle English for a guide for Ankaresses. It is a book of instruction addressed to three sisters of noble birth who wore Ankaresses in West Midlands in England in the 13th century. Tolkien made a detailed study of the language which this treatise shares with several other religious works from the same area. He calls it the AB language, which is this, the term still used today. He demonstrated that this was not simply a local dialect, but a shared written literary language of a literary community descended in part from late literary Old English. In 1959, Tolkien was given a letter addressed to any professor of English language at Oxford. The letter asked whether it is correct to say a number of office walls has been damaged or a number of office walls have been damaged. I'm wondering whether we should have a vote on this one. Um, so what would be your answer? Sorry? Mm -hmm. Well, Tolkien gave a somewhat different answer with which uh, actually most descriptive linguists would agree, though it would be difficult to express it as precisely and succinctly. He wrote, your letter has eventually reached me, though I am not any professor of English language since I have now retired. The answer is that you can say what you like. Pedantry insists that since number is a singular noun, the verb should be singular, has. Common sense feels that since walls is plural and are really concerned, the verb should be plural, have. You may take your choice. Tolkien was a brilliant literary critic, as evident in his lecture, The Monsters and the Critics, probably the most widely read and reproduced essay on Beowulf. It would nevertheless be fair to say that his main interest as a researcher was in linguistics. He described himself in one of his letters as primarily a scientific philologist who was also interested in traditional tales. His interest in linguistics was crucial for his career as a writer. As several scholars pointed out, including Tolkien's biographer, Humphrey Carpenter, and particularly Tom Shippey, Tolkien's interest in languages was an inspiration from which his imaginary world developed. In fact, he declared this very clearly himself. 
in one of his letters to his publisher, he wrote that his literary work was fundamentally linguistic in inspiration. He insisted that his interest in inventing languages was not a hobby and not a strange but pardonable aberration in an elderly professor of philology. On the contrary, um, you didn't see this slide. No. Sorry, this is about Ankrinoise and AB language. Um, <laughs> and this is the one which we should be looking at now. So this is a quote from his letter to his publisher where he writes about languages being his inspiration in his um, work as a writer. So he explains that the invention of languages is the foundation. The stories were made rather to, pr to provide a world for the languages than the reverse. To me, a name comes first and the story follows, a very famous quotation from Tolkien. One can naturally wonder what made languages so inspiring for Tolkien. Apparently, he could perceive beauty in the very sound and form of ordinary words. In an essay, English and Welsh, he gives Selador as an example of words which sound beautifully, especially if dissociated from their sense and spelling. Tolkien wrote that the pleasure given by beautifully sounding words is not irrational and can be compared to being sensitive to the line of a hill, light and shades, or color. He also remarked that there is a pleasure in the contemplation of the association of form and sense of words. He admitted that this pleasure is difficult to explain, but believed that it can be experienced most strongly in the study of foreign languages, partly because of the freshness of the experience and the lack of habit and automation. Tolkien thought that this was also an argument for the study of ancient languages, where this freshness and distance must always remain, because as he said, no scholar could ever feel all the undercurrents of connotation from period to period which words possess. He observed that he encountered particularly many words which give him his displeasure in Welsh. He remarked that reading this Welsh phrase, which I don't want to pronounce, on a stone slab pierced his linguistic heart. The phrase means simply, it was built, which Tolkien did not know at the time. Tolkien is known for his linguistic research to scholars, but he is much more widely known as an inventor of artificial languages, which are still learned and spoken today. And so I would like to discuss his invented languages in some detail. What were his reasons for constructing languages? And how do they differ, if at all, from other artificial languages? Tolkien developed an interest in constructing languages again when he was a child, but it lasted throughout his life. He discussed it in an essay, A Secret Vice, written around 1930, to which I will be referring throughout this lecture. 
the vice in question is Tolkien's passion for inventing languages. He did not think that what he was doing was unique and insisted that the invention of languages is more common than is usually assumed, particularly among children. This is probably true, but in most cases, when languages are invented, it is for a practical reason of some kind, usually some kind of communication. <coughs> Children sometimes invent languages for secret communication. But the inspiration behind the, the best-known artificial languages, such as Verlopak proposed in 1879 and Esperanto proposed in 1887, was to create a language for international communication as a second language for, for those wishing to use it, or even as a global language for people to learn at birth. The problem of communication between nations has always existed, and the need for an international language was felt in Europe and other parts of the world during antiquity, Middle Ages, and Renaissance. The solution has always been the use of one of the natural languages, propelled into this role by historical and economic circumstances, such as Greek, Latin, French, or English in the modern world. An international language allows people of different nationalities to communicate, but its role is not purely positive. It also becomes a tool of elitism and exclusion, because it is available only to those with access to wealth and education and helps to alienate those without such privileges. In the Middle Ages, the function of an international language was performed by Latin, but already at the end of the Middle Ages, its use declined, and already in the 17th century, suggestions were made to replace Latin with an artificial language. The concerns of inventors of artificial languages for international or other communication tends to be practical. <coughs> Such languages should be easy to learn and should therefore have regular grammar and orthography. The inventors of both Verlopak and Esperanto also believed that a cosmopolitan vocabulary is an advantage. This helps speakers from different countries to recognize and remember words and to, and to identify with a new language, though in both these cases the vocabulary was really Eurocentric. Another essential requir requirement for an international language is the development and description of a standard which can be taught and adhered to. In spite of all the efforts of the inventors, uh, inventors and proponents, artificial languages tend to fail. And there is a number of important reasons why this is so. Such languages need to perform the same very wide range of communicative functions that is covered by a natural language. From high poetry and philosophy to nursery rhymes and weather forecasts. Languages need to be able to change and develop and to express identity 
a very important function of any language. But this is very difficult or even simply impossible without a society which considers the language its own. Tolkien was interested in Esperanto, and it seems that his views on its prospects as a language for international communication were relatively optimistic, at least early in his career. He was supportive of Esperanto in the 1930s, and even became, in 1932, a member of the Board of Honorary Advisors to the Education Committee of the British Esperanto Association. In A Secret Vice, he wrote about the desirability of an artificial language for international communication. He describes an ideal artificial language for practical purposes, such as Esperanto, as a human language bereft of the inconveniences due to too many successive cooks. Later in life, however, he made much more negative com comments about artificial languages for international communication. In 1956, in a draft letter to Mr. Thompson, he wrote, Verlopak, Esperanto, Ido, Novial, etc., etc., are dead, far deader than ancient languages, ancient unused languages because their authors have never invented any Esperanto legends. The comments about the legends is interesting and seems to recognize the need for culture, society, and identity as essential requirements for the development and survival of a language. It can be added that the only language in Tolkien's fiction which started as an artificial language, especially made up for communication between different races is the black speech. It was devised by Sauron to be used by those who he subjected. In Middle-earth, the need for a shared language is served by Western or common speech. As envisaged by Tolkien, Western assumed this role through a natural historical process, developing from, from Adunaic, the language of culturally and politically influential Numenorians. In the course of its existence, it became enriched with words from other languages spoken by men, as well as from the languages of the other races of Middle-earth. Whatever his attitudes to languages such as Esperanto, Tolkien's own interests were very different. His best-known languages were not developed for communication or other practical purposes. Quite uniquely, Tolkien saw the construction of languages as a form of art, perhaps similar to writing poetry. He even invented a new term, art language. His reasons for constructing languages were primarily aesthetic rather than utilitarian. As a result, Tolkien's concerns were very different from those of other creators of artificial languages. Thus, simplicity and ease of learning generally so important for artificial languages were not a consideration for him at all. His languages tend to be complex. They are, for example, highly inflected, particularly quenya, 
one of his most fully developed Elvish languages. In addition to having a rather complex grammar, Quenya has what is meant to look like rather archaic features, such as the dual number. The dual number was characteristic of many early Indo-European languages, but generally disappeared in their descendants. Old English had the dual number only in pronouns, which means that different forms were used to say many of us and two of us. Gothic, another ancient Germanic language, had the dual number also in verbs. Tolkien's European and English-speaking audience would have encountered the dual number only as a disappearing relic in languages such as ancient Greek, Old English, Old Norse, Sanskrit, and other. Presumably, this is one of the reasons for its use by Tolkien. Its role was presumably stylistic to give Quenya an ancient language in Tolkien's fiction, an archaic feel. On the whole, Tolkien seems to have admired linguistic complexity, whereas most inventors of artificial languages are interested in simplicity for practical reasons. Simplicity and regularity did not seem to have been attractive to him. A very important question which is frequently asked is whether it is possible to speak Tolkien's languages. Depending on who you ask, you may get very different answers. One could say that those interested in Tolkien's languages are divided into two camps. On the one hand, as you know, there are websites and grammar books which promise to teach you to speak and write Tolkien's languages. And of course, there are people who learn them and teach them to others. On the other hand, however, there are those who believe that the answer to this question, whether it is possible to speak Tolkien's languages, can be only no, not in the form in which he left them. As you can imagine, the leading members of the two camps are, are engaged in vigorous scholarly debate and do not miss an opportunity to trash each other's work in print, on websites, mailing lists, and in Amazon reviews. All this creates a very confusing situation for a student of Tolkien. It could be difficult to understand who to believe and where to find reliable information about Tolkien's languages. Perhaps the best-known scholar of the first camp who advocates the study and use of Tolkien's languages is American linguist David Salo. He was a consultant to Peter Jackson's films and translated lyrics and other material written for the films into Tolkien's languages. He can be seen discussing Tolkien's languages in the appendices to the films published on DVDs. And I will show an extract uh, from the appendices in a few minutes. His influential recent books, book, A Gate to Sindarian, a grammar of an Elvish language from Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings um, was published in 2004 by the University of Utah Press. 
Perhaps the most prominent scholar of the second camp is Carl Hostetter, another American linguist and author of numerous articles on Tolkien's languages and an editor of two journals on the subject, both listed on your handout. This is a cover of a collection of essays on the history of Middle-earth, which he co-edited with another Tolkien scholar, Verlin Flieger, in the year 2000. It is also on your handouts and contains some important articles on Tolkien's languages. Disagreements among the scholars of Tolkien's languages can be seen, for example, in reviews of David Salo's book, A Gateway to Sindarin on Amazon. The book regularly gets five-star reviews from Tolkien's fans, and this one, published on Amazon UK, is representative of the lot. Although there are several guides to Tolkien's languages, these tend to be rather general and concise, designed more to give an, a taste of the work the professor put into his epic tales. Gateway to Sindarin has far more detail and treats the Sindarin language in the same way as a French grammar reader would treat its subject. Personally, as someone who uses Sindarin frequently for contributions to a fan website, this made the book invaluable. It is well written, clear, and with, with its appendices, word lists as well, this book finally gives all the information a student would need about Sindarin in one place. This is the rest of the review, and as you can see, the writer goes on to praise Salo's in-depth analysis of grammar, consonant mutation, and so on. And finally, at the end, even the linen binding of the book, with its almost ethereal, elvish quality, is not lost on the enthusiastic reviewer. Very different, however, a review of the same book by Carl Hostetter, published on Amazon US. He gives the book only two stars and writes, the book presents an exhaustive synthesis and systematization of what is more accurately termed neo-Sindarin. That is an altered synthetic form of Sindarin, not as Tolkien ever conceived of it, but instead as cobbled together by Salo himself through selective reuse and modification of attested Noldorian forms, which in fact form the, the vast bulk of the evidence for Salo's Sindarin, in admixture with actual Sindarin forms and with forms wholly invented by the author. Here is the rest of the review, and as you can see, words like misrepresents fabricated and misleading are generously scattered through its text. The problem is, and this is what Hostetter keeps saying in his articles and reviews, that Tolkien never finalized or fully described his languages to make possible their use by others. Our knowledge of their grammar is fragmentary. The vocabulary of even most fully developed languages, like Quenya and Sindarin, is tiny compared to the vocabulary of any historical language. 
there are few examples of texts and very little description published during Tolkien's lifetime or posthumously. The second problem is that Tolkien never developed a standard form of his languages and continued to change them throughout his lifetime. Even though there is continuity, the Quenya of 1920s is different from the Quenya of the Lord of the Rings. The languages occupied Tolkien throughout his career and he continued to change them liberally throughout his lifetime. Both before and after the publication of the Lord of the Rings. Because of this, some scholars are strongly opposed to attempts to present them in a standardized form in which they can be learned and spoken by others. Hostetta and other like-minded scholars believe that the aim of Tolkienian linguistics is to describe what is known about the languages at different stages of their development by Tolkien. Another aim is to publish Tolkien's own linguistic works, and it, at present many materials remain unpublished and there is no recent, rigorously documented survey of Tolkien's languages, partly because, as Dr. Lee emphasized in his lectures, the university study of Tolkien's fiction is fairly recent. Tolkien's languages can, of course, be standardized and further developed to make possible to speak them and to use them in translations. However, as Hostetter rightly insists, this results in synthesized forms of Quenya and Sindarin, not actually found anywhere in Tolkien's own writings, and defined ultimately not by Tolkien's linguistic and aesthetic views, but rather by the synthesizer's own selection across the decades of Tolkien's linguistic writing and conceptions. Hostetta points out that it is impossible to describe Quenya and Sindarin as systems without making multiple selections, uh, arbitrary decisions and interpretations. This leads us to another question, which is currently rather difficult to answer. Where can one, can one find Tolkien's own description of his languages? There are several sources of our knowledge about Tolkien's languages. They can be subdivided into three types. First, there are descriptions of invented languages in Tolkien's works published during his lifetime, such as appendices E and F to the Lord of the Rings. These, however, are very few. Tolkien's commentary on his Quenya and Sindarin po poems, published as an appendix to Donald Swan's, again in your handout, The Road Goes Ever On, and the Lord of the Rings itself, with its translations of texts and names in invented languages, constitute essentially all the information which Tolkien published during his lifetime. Secondly, there are materials published posthumously, such as Tolkien's letters or works edited by Christopher Tolkien, an annotated chronological list of Tolkien's chief writings published before 2007, dealing with or exemplifying his invented languages, is provided by Hostetter in Elvish Compositions and Grammars, which is also on your handout. 
this list is incomplete because of the continuing efforts to make Tolkien's linguistic works available. And finally, there are texts written by Tolkien in his languages, predominantly poetry. Again, whose status list in Elvish compositions and grammars covers examples of such texts in The Lord of the Rings and other works. Since there is little direct description of the languages by Tolkien, scholars attempt to fill in the gaps through the formal analysis of such texts. This can be done very successfully by linguists, particularly because Tolkien usually provides a translation or a paraphrase of these texts in his published works. However, Tolkien's compositions in his invented languages are still a very small body of material, which also shows variation and fluidity because of his continuous development of his languages. Some aspects of Tolkien's languages are better described by him than others. We know reasonably well their history and how they are related. Tolkien wrote about this in the Appendix F to the Lord of the Rings. Vocabulary, limited though it is, is also reasonably well known. Tolkien left glossaries and provided translations of texts and names in his invented languages. Tolkien's interest in phonology, writing systems, and aesthetics of the phonetic form ensured that the sound systems of his languages and their developments tend to be better known. What is not so well known, however, is the grammar of his languages. Tolkien's descriptions of it are few, though, as mentioned already, grammar can be partially reconstructed through the analysis of texts where they exist. The best developed of Tolkien's languages are the two elvish tongues, Quenya and Sindarian. Tolkien envisaged them developing from a common proto-language and built similarities into their phonology, vocabulary, and grammar. Such similarities can be explained by the common origin of the two languages and their gradual divergence and through change and the development of individual features. Many personal and geographical names in the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings are made up of Quenya and Sindarin words the form of names takes into account the relationship between Quenya and Sindarin and the existence of parallel, similar but not identical Quenya and Sindarin forms. I will now give a brief overview of the languages which Tolkien uses in The Lord of the Rings. So Quenya. Tolkien first developed Quenya between 1915 and 1919 and wrote on a description of it, which he called Quenya Questa. It contains the Quenya lexicon, a discussion of its sound system, and an overview of its development and relationship to other Elvish languages. Tolkien wrote that Quenya is composed on a Latin basis, 
with Finnish and Greek as two other main ingredients. In Tolkien's mythology, Quenya was originally the language of the High Elves of the Eldar, who crossed the sea during the First Age and lived in Eldamar. At the time of the, of the War of the Ring, it was no longer learned at birth, but was used, as Tolkien says, for high matters of law and song. Examples of Quenya include Galadriel's laments and Aragorn's coronation oath in the Lord of the Rings. You remember the coronation oath, of course. And this is, this is the table which Tolkien constructed in 1967 and sent to Richard Plotz, the president of the American Society, of the Tolkien Society of America, the famous Plotz Declension. As you can see, it shows the declension of two Quenya nouns. The first one, this one means sheep, and this one means leaf. As I have already mentioned, Quenya is a highly inflected language. Its grammar is more similar to languages such as Latin or modern German than to modern English. It is known in two forms, spoken Quenya and written or book Quenya. Written Quenya has seven cases shown here. Shown here, including nominative, accusative, genitive, instrumental, elative, locative, and ablative. In spoken Quenya, Accusative and nominative coincided. Whereas modern English, a modern English noun has two numbers, singular and plural. Quenya has four numbers, singular, two kinds of plural, and dual. So if you are learning a language, whether it is Greek or Old English or Old Norse, and you are struggling with grammar at, at bits, look at this. This is so much worse. <laughs> I have already explained what is dual number. The difference between the two plurals shown here, plural one and plural two, is that different inflections were used to say all leaves and some leaves. Quenya verbs are inflected for person and number, have three tenses, present, past, and future and a perfective aspect. The, the declension of the noun is the best known part of Quenya grammar. The declension of adjectives and the system of verbs are less clear. Quenya is also not uniform. The Quenya of 1920s differs from the Quenya of 1930s and in turn differs from the Quenya of the Lord of the Rings. So he continued to change and develop it throughout his lifetime. We are now going to listen to Tolkien reading a Quenya poem, and this is Galadriel's Lament. It is on your handouts, and if it works and plays, it should be quite clear, so you can actually follow it uh, looking at the text. 
Sindarin is less inflected than Quenya, and the relationship between words are commonly indicated by word order and prepositions rather than inflections, so a bit more similar to modern English. But we are now going to, to watch a short e extract from the appendices to um, Peter Jackson's The Return of the King, and the return, uh, the return of the King, and this has a discussion of Tolkien's um, Quenya and Sindarian, and a useful comparison of Quenya with Welsh. And uh, there are three speakers. The first is David Salo, the second is Tom Shippey, and then another Tolkien scholar, John Garth. Pete, up to this point, been studying Latin, Greek, Old English, all these Indo-European languages. Um, however, I think something which uh, struck him like a, like a boat from the blue was picking up uh, Charles Eliot's Finnish grammar while he was an undergraduate, because this is a language which really is not at all like anything he'd come across before. Arvele ajattelevi, pitkin päätöset pitävi, kentämaita kylvämään, toukoja tiittämään. And it inspired him to devise Quenya, the first Elvish language. Uh, but Tolkien is also very intrigued by Welsh, a language which he liked very much, uh, and he produced another uh, Elvish language, which is Sindarin, which in some ways is is rather like Welsh in its uh, phonetic structure. Western or common speech. Western or common speech is the native language of many men on Middle Earth, including the men of Gondor and hobbits as well. It is also a language of interlingual communication between different peoples and races. Western is represented in the Lord of the Rings by modern English. The ancestor of Western was Adunaic the language spoken by the Numenorians. The language of the Rehirim is related to Western because it descended from another language closely related to Adunaic. In the Lord of the Rings, Rehiric is represented by Old English, as you know, which highlights its common origin with Western. The language spoken by the hobbits of the Shire is a rustic form of Western. Tolkien gives, however, very few genuine Western or Adionaic forms, and these are mostly names. Kuzdol is the language of the dwarves in Tolkien's fiction. By the time of the War of the Ring, 
it was, hard, it's, it was largely replaced by the languages of men in everyday use and was preserved only as the language of learning and secret communication. Examples of Kuzdo are very few and includes place names, the dwarf's battle cry used by Gimli in the siege of Hornberg, and the inscription on Balian's tomb in the Lord of the Rings. This is the, ins the inscription on Balian's tomb. It is in runes, an alphabet used by the dwarves in Tolkien's fiction, and it reads, Balian, son of Fandian, Lord of Moria. And this is the battle cry of the dwarves. And now the black speech. This was devised by Sauron as a language for himself and all those under his power. It was used by Sauron, the Nazgul, and the Orcs, but as Tolkien says, not willingly by other peoples. It is known only from a few names and phrases, and the most famous example of the black speech is the inscription on the One Ring. Now, I would like briefly to talk briefly about Tolkien's alphabets, which he uses in The Lord of the Rings. The alphabets should not be confused with languages. Two closely related alphabets can be used for to, to write, sorry, so two, two closely related um, languages can use very different alphabets. And on the contrary, different, completely unrelated alphabets can be used to write the same language. Tolkien was, of course, an inventor of both languages and alphabets. As with his languages, an interest in the creation of alphabets developed very early in his career. Humphrey Carpenter says that in 1919, he started to keep a diary, which he wrote in an alphabet, which was a mixture of Hebrew, Greek, and Pitman's shorthand. The main alphabets which Tolkien uses in his fiction are described in Appendix E to The Lord of the Rings, though these are not the only ones which he invented. These alphabets used in the Third Age at the time of the War of the Rings of, of the Ring are of two main kinds. The Tengwa, which is Aquenia words meaning letters, and the Kurta or Kurth, which is a Sindarin word meaning runes. The Tengwa are also known as the Feanorian letters because they were invented by an Noldorian prince Feano. Tengwa were used to write Elvish languages, Quenya and Sindarin, but also other languages, including Western and the Black Speech. So the Black Speech inscription on the Wang Ring is in Tengwa. As I have already mentioned, the Sindarin inscription on the West Gate of Moria is also in Tengwa. The curse were invented by the Grey Elves of Beleriand, but at the time of the War of the Rings, they were used mostly by the dwarves, though also by men, including the Rahirim, and by the Orcs. The curse appear in the inscription on Balian's tomb. 
Tolkien explains how his alphabets were used in Appendix E to the Lord of the Rings, but is his explanation is not very easy to read because when he explains, he tries to avoid using too many linguistic terms. But ultimately, he doesn't give enough detail to make it easy to understand for someone who doesn't understand the linguistic terms. And it is also rather confusing to, for those who do understand linguistic terms, exactly because he doesn't use them. So I will have a go at trying to explain how Tolkien envisaged his alphabets to be used. As he explains in the appendix E, the Tengua did not have fixed sound values and had a potential to be applied to different languages. Tolkien termed such applications modes. The sounds of in any language can be classified according to how and where in the mouth they are articulated. For example, modern English T is a dental voiceless consonant. What makes it dental is that when it is pronounced, the tongue touches the teeth. And what makes it, it voiceless is that when it is pronounced, the vocal cords are passive. Whereas D is a dental voiced consonant, which means th that when it is pronounced, the tongue touches the teeth and so it is dental, but it is also voiced. And this is because when you pronounce the, the vocal cords vibrate. And you can see it for yourself quite clearly if you put your hand on your throat and try saying the, 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 the in succession, you will feel very clearly that with voice sounds, your vocal cords vibrate, and with voiceless sounds, your vocal cords are passive. The same is the difference between B and P in modern English, for example. Not the only difference, but a major difference. <laughs> so Tolkien envisaged that the shapes of the tengua indicated the manner and place of articulation of sounds which they represented. The shapes characterized sounds as dental, labial, vela, voiced, voiceless, nasal, and so on but they did not exactly specify how the sounds were pronounced or what the sounds were. Thus, for example, the four letters at the top of this table in the first row represented voiceless consonants, whereas the doubling of the bow, as in the second row here, indicated the addition of voice. So in order to create a mode or an application of the tengua for a particular language, you need to classify the sounds in that language according to their place and method of pronunciation, and then to match each sound to a letter which was traditionally used to represent this sound. Thus, the tengua character um, here in the left top corner was traditionally used to represent a dental voiceless consonant. In modern English, this description would suit T. A letter just underneath this one was traditionally used to represent a dental voiced consonant. So in modern English, this, was, this would suit D. 
So a reader of such writing, even if they did not know the language, will have a good idea of how sounds were pronounced. And this is something that is essentially missing in all the historical alphabets, at least in their currently known form. Whereas the shapes of the tengwa are Tolkien's original invent invention, the curves are similar in shapes to runes, a historical alphabet which was used by different Germanic nations in continental Europe, Scandinavia, and England in late antiquity and the Middle Ages. The shapes of Tolkien's <coughs> curve are particularly similar to the Anglo-Saxon version of the runic alphabets. The shapes of the curve in the same way as the shapes of the tengwa and under their influence indicated the method of pronunciation of the sounds which they represented. As you can see, they are subdivided into groups by these double dots in Tolkien's table. And the letters in each group have some similarity of form. And this similarities in form indicated the method of pronunciation. So the letters are classified as dental consonant, consonants, vowels, and so on but their values were fixed, so their use was less flexible as with Tengua. And again, this is shown in one of the tables in the appendices to the Lord of the Rings. So to conclude, I have already mentioned that Tolkien believes that there is a connection between languages and myths. Humphrey Carpenter, his biographer, remarks that already in 1915, he developed a language influenced by Finnish to a degree of complexity so that it became possible to write poems in it. This language later became Quenya, but already then Tolkien decided that this was the language spoken by the elves in his, which, who his invented character, the mariner the Erendil, saw on his journeys. Later on, he observed that for a construction of a perfect art language, it is necessary to construct a mythology, at least in outline. He also wrote that the creation of a language will breed a mythology. His languages were not intended to be spoken by others, have never been finalized, and were constructed according to eccentric aesthetic principles and with a complete disregard to all practical considerations. However, he must have known something about languages and must have been doing something right because so many invented languages disappear without a trace, but there now exists an international community which wants, which wants to develop and speak Tolkien's languages in spite of their impractical nature no doubt because of the language, because of the legends which he invented for them. That's all for today, and thank you very much for coming to this lectures. The slides and the recording will be in WebLearn. <laughs>